Well, let's get on into Genesis this evening. Um, maybe I should say, too, that uh, for those out on the phone lines, we have services tomorrow at uh, 10.30 and 2.30, uh, as we usually do on a holy day. <coughs> so you can adjust the time for where you are at 10.30 and 2.30 mountain time. So we came down to Genesis 23. Uh, want to go into it there. I don't know whether I commented last night, I was finishing up, that it, it appears that uh, Abraham's son, Isaac, married his brother's granddaughter. Uh, it, they were so late having Isaac that by the time he grew up, the children of Nahor were, or the grandchildren of Nahor were about the same age as Isaac or they're in that same age group. So it basically skipped the generation is what it did. Um, Rebecca was the granddaughter of Nahor, Nahor who was, uh, was Abraham's brother. Anyway, let's pick it up in chapter 23. <clears throat> Sarah was 127 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died in Kirjath Arba. Uh, interestingly, Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose uh, age at time of death is given. Uh, and the particulars about it, it's, I mean, he, he's got a whole chapter here about the death and the burial of Sarah. Uh, she is very, very important in the scheme of things and in our history. Uh, Galatians 4 talks about her as a type of the church. So as I said, I think last evening, um, Abraham was a type of the Father in heaven, Isaac a type of Christ, and then Sarah, according to the scripture itself, is a type of the church, the bride of Christ. So when we study about Sarah, we study about ourselves, because we are candidates to be a part of the bride of Christ, 144,000. So in that sense, we are very, very closely uh, attuned to and akin with Sarah, what she went through in her life. Uh, I was reminded as I looked at that that there's one place in Isaiah, it's toward the end of, no, I don't remember exactly where it is in Isaiah. We've read it before where it's talking about the church trying to bring forth Christ and trying to uh, give birth. That analogy is used several times in the prophecies about us and what we're going through right now. And it says we strained and only brought forth wind. And uh, it seems like all the effort we put into trying to change, to grow, to overcome, to, to pull away from this world and to try to be like God, it seems to be a very difficult and arduous and a never-ending thing. It just goes on year after year and... Here we are, we know we're in the end time, and we've been aware of that in the church for decades and decades now, and there have been some false starts. Uh, in the 60s, it was being proclaimed pretty strongly that maybe uh, the tribulation would start in 72 and Christ would be back by 75. I know we're all familiar with that. And some of you came into the church even after that time, but Back then, we understood the U.S. and the British Commonwealth in prophecy, and we understood how Israel would 
go into famine and pestilence and, and the sword and into captivity, and we thought it was going to happen then. And people began to prepare for that, and, and then a few warning sermons began to be given in the late 60s and 70-ish, saying that might not be the case, and we might have more time because things weren't happening as fast as we thought they might should if the tribulation were to start in 72. So uh, it was a, a false start. Uh, the prophecies haven't changed. We just didn't understand the timing. But this has gone on for decades now. And uh, in one sense, I think the church has experienced a lot of what Abraham and Sarah went through and how hard it is to go on decade after decade in a world that is an ungodly world trying to live in a godly fashion and trying to worship a God that we cannot see on faith. Uh, so we've been going through what they experienced, and at the same time, we've been experiencing somewhat the same time, the same thing. Uh, I can personally hardly remember a time when we weren't in the church. I can remember vaguely uh, going to the Methodist church, and when we began to come out of it and to begin to understand the truth in about 53, uh, somewhere along there, I was just a kid, uh, the preacher, I can't even remember his name for some strange reason, little old bald-headed Horace Brooks, uh, giving a sermon about how it's okay to eat any and everything, snakes and snails, and because we had started keeping the, the uh, food laws and so he was trying to stop that before it got started in the Methodist church. So, you know, I, that just comes to mind, one of the few things I could remember from back in that age. So my whole life, basically, has been anticipation of these things that we're reading about, and not here yet, not here yet, not here yet. And, and Mr. Armstrong talking for years and years about the gun lab. I don't know how many gun lap sermons I've heard throughout my life. <laughs> you know, uh, he was always trying to keep us stirred and keep us moving forward. <laughs> and uh, so we'd enter a new gun lap. Man alive, they blow the gun every time you go around and you have to run hard. Uh, after a while, you, you, you begin to falter a little, and maybe that's one reason the church began to get slack and lackadaisical and why God blew it apart. It may have been... Uh, in part due to some of that. But uh, here we are now, and we see things shaping up in the world that uh, do appear to be harbingers of what is about to explode on the world scene. So the waiting is not in vain. Uh, you know, we need to be convinced that God's way is the best way anyway, and it's the best way to live, and not just say, well, I guess I can... I can do it God's way for a little while longer, uh, you know. We, we need to be convinced His way is the best and does produce peace and happiness in families and so on better than the way that this world is going. And that certainly is true. But at the same time, when you're anticipating something, hope deferred does make the heart sick. And uh, we have to deal with it. And... 
maybe we can understand a little bit about what they went through in anticipating and waiting for a child to be born. And she finally had a child at age 90. And then she lived another 37 years, long enough to see Isaac grow up. Uh, he, he wasn't married till age 40, but she saw him grow up and get to a marriageable age at least before she died. But it is an interesting parallel in how many decades she waited to see on a physical level the fruit of her patience and faith in God and how long the church in this modern era has waited this long to see our patience and faith in God rewarded. But it will come uh, just as surely as it did to Abraham and to Sarah. So she is a very, very important personage in the history of the Bible and is mentioned very, very highly in Hebrews 11. Uh, and God devotes an entire chapter. You know, the Bible uh, leaves out an awful lot of things uh, in history and things that could have been noted. And it could be a pile of books as high as this building or higher if you tried to get it all in. So in one sense, it's very precious space. Uh, and God devotes a whole chapter here to just her death. I mean, there's this story started back in chapter 11, and here we are in 23, and uh, Abraham and Sarah are, are uh, taking up a lot of print in God's Word. So that must have been very important to him. And when you consider Galatians 4, where Paul makes it very clear that she is a type of the church, then uh, her life should be a very, very important lesson for us. So Abraham, it says, came uh, to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. The question was brought up last night, well, were they separated? Had something happened and uh, they were living apart? Um, it, it almost sounds like that, just reading it here, but I uh, checked some commentaries to see what uh, they had to say about this. And uh, the indication was that Abraham, of course, had many flocks and herds and had business interests uh, over a wide area. And the place where he was and the place where it says she died, uh, according to their view at least of the Middle East, uh, was only about 24 miles apart. So there's nothing to indicate that there was anything uh, awry in the marriage that would have caused him to be in a separate habitation, he may have had uh, temporary residences uh, in several different places, because when you have as many flocks and herds as he did, uh, you had to keep moving about to see, uh, to look after things. And even uh, fairly good-sized ranches in the West in the past had what they call line shacks scattered over their range because it was too big to cover in a day or two or whatever, so they'd send a cowboy out to a line shack and he would be looking after the cattle in that area and move on to another. And there could be many miles in between them by horseback, so at the end of the day he had to be near a line shack if the weather was bad or whatever, so he had a place to, to camp in reasonable comfort out of the weather uh, as he did his work. And I suspect that that was the case here uh, with Abraham and Sarah. Uh, considering the importance of this family in history and she being 
a type of the church and and Abraham being a type of the father. Uh, Isaac, uh, her daughter, or her son here is a type of, of Christ. Uh, there had to be closeness. I don't think that that had been compromised. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, what what message does that give us? Now, the fact that he was traveling and she was getting old and couldn't travel with him and may have had to stay there, her health may have been failing or whatever, and he had to go to other areas and maybe circle back. Uh, maybe there is somewhat of an analogy there even in that for us, that Christ is with his Father in heaven and uh, uh, his bride is here and we're not as close as we need to be. Uh, well, that's, it's not exactly the same Abraham and Sarah. I was thinking of Isaac representing Christ and the bride. Uh, that, that, yeah, forget that. That analogy doesn't quite fit. But uh, just it came to mind that we're kind of struggling here to be close to Christ. Uh, he's gone away. And he did talk to his disciples about that, that he would return. And he tells us that he will come suddenly to his temple and then he will come and dwell with us there in Zechariah 2 and be with us, God with us, during this terrible end time that is coming. That's a little bit of a, a different thread, but uh, nonetheless, we have difficulty staying right with him at all times and getting the relationship the way it needs to be. So he came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Wherever he was within range, someone I'm sure came immediately to tell him that Sarah had died and he dropped everything and went to her side, well, to where she was anyway. And Abraham stood up from before his dead. Uh, they did have a custom of mourning and might not even get up for seven days. So he came immediately to her. I'm sure he mourned there that period of time as was customary and stood up from before his dead, and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So he did the mourning that was requisite, and then he wanted a barrier, uh, and you have to move on. You know, you can't just, they, they deteriorate after they're dead. You can't keep them there, and there's no point in it. Uh, there's a time to bury the dead and move on. Uh, there is yet life to live. And we can't sit living in the past and mourning beyond a certain point. I'm sure we'll miss and there's part of our life gone, but you have to pick up and move on. So he made the arrangements, and even though he was living in the area, it was not his natural place. His natural place was back where uh, Nahor, and he had come from. So he still considered himself a stranger and a sojourner with them and wanted to buy a place to bury the dead so that he might have an honorable burial and so on. You know, just because you're in a place doesn't mean that you are one of them yet. I know in that little town of Wolf Creek, Montana, we lived in for some years, you know, it was 100 people on a good day, uh, but some of those old farmers and ranchers had been there for three and four and five generations. And if you move there, 
you were a stranger till the day you died. <laughs> Until you'd been there two or three generations, you weren't even considered one of them. Uh, now, they tried to treat us like we were more or less that way, but the old ranch families kind of, most of them kind of stood back. And then we stayed for a while after we sold our place to finish up some work and so on. And those old families then, who had been kind of at least friendly, uh, just looked upon us as transients. They're on their way out of here. Don't even bother with them. But that's the way it was. And I'm sure that he faced some of that prejudice there. But anyway, he approached them, and the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us, and the choice of our sepulchers bury your dead. So he had been there some years, and they did uh, think very highly of Abraham, even though he wasn't of their tribe, their family, and so on. None of us shall withhold from you his sepulcher, that you may bury your dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. So he may have been a stranger there, but I would say from his life and the way he had lived and the respect he had shown, they had a respect for him, even though he had not been there that long and, and was acceptable as one of them. But he lived in such a way that they had a deep respect for him. He wasn't a cheat. He wasn't a thief in business. He wasn't sleazy with the way he went about things. He made sure that people were paid. And you'll see that right down here in this story as well. So he was honorable in every way. And very much an example for us here. You know, we, we come here and people know we're here. You, you don't come out and buy a piece of land and move this many people on without everybody around knowing you're here. And over a period of time, they're going to see how we do business, how we treat them, if we're respectful and courteous and, and kind and friendly and, and if we are honorable in business, they'll see that. And if, they're, and if we're not, they'll see that too. And uh, you have to build a reputation. And you'll get a reputation one way or another. And if you're building the right kind, then things will be better. But when you start trying to do business in a, let's say, a Mormon or Lutheran or whatever community you go in, and most of them are one way, they'll take care of each other first. And it's hard to break in, and it's hard to gain their respect, and you have to work hard at it. And these people over here in the cities that are neighbors, uh, they know about us. They've had quite a bit to do with us over there in those Quonsets. Oh yeah, we know, we know who you are. I was talking to some the other day in town. Uh, they knew where we were, and I don't know exactly what their opinion of us was. Uh, I know I heard recently that someone here out in Cane Beds referred us as, to us as that riffraff down there. Uh, so, <laughs> those people live in all those old trailers, and I don't know why they call us their classes as riffraff, but I, I guess that's what we are in the eyes of some, at least. But I hope that our uh, lives are showing and what we're doing here that, that we can be solid citizens and, and hopefully earn their respect.
But Abraham apparently had. Uh, verse 8, And he communed with them, saying, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burying place among you. Uh, and they were in the land of Canaan, uh, the field of Machpelah uh, may be, right around where we think Jerusalem may be, and we may find these tombs. You know, it is getting popular now in this day and age to say you found the tombs of Christ and, and his wives and his relatives and all that stuff in the Middle East and it's a bunch of poppycock, but uh, nonetheless, those graves are around. Poppycock, where'd that come from? Nobody here's probably ever heard that word. I know where I got it. I heard Herbert Armstrong use it 50 years ago. <laughs> it just came out my mouth. Uh, verse 10, And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham and the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me, the field give I you, and the cave that is therein, I give it you, in the presence of the sons of my people, give I it you, bury your dead. So he's offering it as a free gift, and so you got these witnesses around here, I'm going to give it to you. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron and the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if you will give it, I pray you, hear me, I will give you money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, hearken to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? Bury therefore your dead. In other words, I, I do want you to pay me. I'm offering it to you free, but I'll tell you what it's worth. <laughs> uh, what's that between me and you? Abraham hearkened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver. So he, he read between the lines, even though the guy was being friendly and, and, and offering. He knew he wanted paid. So he weighed the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. And the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field that were in all the borders round about, were made sure. Uh, whether it means he built a fence or somehow enclosed it under Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan, um, making sure we know where it's talking about and what land it's in. Um, maybe that's important because one of these days we may find these graves. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure to Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. I guess the making sure up there, uh, the borders and about, were making sure they knew where the borders were. Maybe if they probably set up markers like they did, stones or something, say this is Abraham's land now, it doesn't belong to Heth anymore. Uh, Anyway, and Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the eternal had blessed Abraham in all things. So over a period of time, uh, 
He had been blessed in any way you can name to be blessed, including having Isaac as an heir. And Abraham said to his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray you, your hand under my thigh. We've been under through that. It wasn't his thigh. Uh, and I will make you swear by the eternal, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. Uh, it was important to him that they not intermarry with the world around them. We went through some scriptures the other night uh, in the Old and the New Testament showing that we are to be separate from and not marry uh, outside the church. Only in the Lord is spiritual Jews is where we have to marry. Uh, that, that has been important all the way back. And it is all through the Bible. I didn't by any means make an exhaustive study tonight. I, the other night I gave you uh, quite a few good ones, but not everyone by any means. But you should go to my country and go to my kindred and take a wife to my son, Isaac. It's important to marry within their bloodlines uh, to keep that secure, to keep it good, to keep it as pure as they could. Um, and the serpent said to him, What if the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land? Must I need bring your son again to the land from where you came? He's concerned about how he's going to make this happen. And Abraham said to him, Beware that you bring not my son there again. Don't take your son, my son, where I came from. I don't want him to go back there. Um, the Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your seed will I give this land. He was in the land of Canaan. Uh, he shall send his angel before you and shall take a wife to you, my son, from there. Abraham was not going to go back where he came from. He was going to stay where he was, where God had told him to go, and he was going to do all that was within his power to see that his son stayed in the same land that God had said, this is the land I'm giving you. Don't go somewhere else. Uh, verse 8, And if the woman will not be willing to follow you, then you shall be clear from this my oath, only bring not my son there again. Go get this job done. If the girl that is pointed out won't come back, you don't have to worry about it beyond that. Just don't take him there. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and testified to him concerning that matter. So the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hands. Abraham had told him, uh, apparently, take ten camels, beasts of burden, and load on them whatever gifts you want. Uh, anything I have that you think you might need, it is implied, uh, you take along uh, as a gift to the parents and to the daughter that she might be persuaded that this wouldn't be such a bad deal after all. So the servant took camels, a tin of the camels, and departed for all the goods of his master were in his hand, and he rose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor, where Nahor lived. 
Uh, and he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time the women go out to draw water. Uh, they didn't have water running in their houses in those days. They had to go to the well and fetch water to cook and to bathe and everything else. Uh, we have one pump down right now. I put it in my car to take in and replace, and I didn't wasn't able to get away in time to do it today. So if that pump goes down, um, we'll be dipping water out of the wells. That time could come. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray you, send me good speed this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. So he got to the city of Nahor, went out to the well, and prayed. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. Let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down your pitcher, I pray you, that I may drink, and she shall drink, shall say, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. Let the same be she that is appointed for your servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that you have showed kindness to my master. Interesting prayer. Uh, there might have been quite a few families in that city and quite a few daughters and quite a few women that came down to draw water. But he wanted God to help him find the one that he wanted for Isaac. And he had a, a sacred trust here that he had testified with Abraham about, wanted to be sure it happened. I think it's interesting the sign that he asked. He didn't say, Dear Lord, please send me the prettiest girl in town for Isaac, or the smartest girl in town for Isaac, or something like that, or the first one that comes out, make that be the one. Uh, I, I think that he was asking here in part about her character. A lot of girls, if they came out and saw a stranger uh, with ten camels, would have said, draw your own water, you grubby old feller, or something of that nature. I'm here to get water for my family. See ya. But he said, send me one that would volunteer to give me water and also that would have the kind of serving, giving, outgoing attitude that she would offer to draw water for my camels as well. In other words, go a little above and beyond. Now, there might have been, by chance, some who would have said, uh, Hello, sir. Uh, you look dusty and you've been traveling. Uh, can I get you a drink of water? But not too the Camels get thirsty. Not too many would have wanted to draw that much water, bucket by bucket, you know, if you had to draw it up, or if, you, if they had the circular walkway down into the wells that some of them had, you had to walk all the way down and fill your bucket and then walk circularly all the way back out. So it could take quite a little time to water ten camels and a man. So I, I, he was sitting there looking at the situation and wondering, how do I find this girl? And it came to mind that I'm looking for the kind of girl that would offer to go down into that well however many times or draw that bucket up and feed ten camels or water ten camels. And by that I'll know. It came to pass, before he had done speaking, <laughs> God had this all set up, 
You know, God can do things very, very quickly when he wants to. And he can make you wait a long, long time when he wants to. He's God. He made Abraham and Sarah wait a long, long time for a son, and then when it came time for the son to marry, uh, he was this guy was given the prayer, and bang, here she comes, just like that. Hadn't even done speaking, but behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon. Now, that's, that was a bonus. She had the right kind of attitude, A, and then she was nice to look at as well. A virgin, that's another bonus. Neither had any man known her, that is, sexually. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray you, drink a little water of your pitcher. That's all he asked for. Let me drink a little water out of your pitcher. Maybe we're living in a different world today. <laughs> How many girls would stand still to even let him ask the question in our society today? Some guy approaches a mile on the parking lot mall and says, uh, I see you got a bottle of orange juice there. Could I have just a little? And you'd think, oh, yeah, right, go away. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. She didn't stand back and, well, I don't know about this. She, she hurried. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have done drinking. He hadn't asked for that at all, but she volunteered to do that. And she hurried and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again, ran to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. We have today a self-absorbed society that has to look good, smell good, uh, take care of its life, we tend to be very self-centered and asked to do something it's often grudgingly or not at all might even get turned down because that attitude of service and giving uh, is simply not something that i guess is valued that much in our society we're so self-absorbed we could care less about someone else's comfort in many cases or that they're a stranger and might have need, but they may apparently taught their children back then, you, you help, you, you be of service. And it wasn't that all young ladies were that way. Notice what he says, and the man wondering at her held his peace. This was an unusual girl, even to him. So even though they taught service and giving, she went above and beyond. He held his peace to wit whether the Eternal had made his journey prosperous or not. He was just sitting back, wondering about her, and perhaps somewhat amazed at her attitude. And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, that the man took a golden earring of a half-shekel weight 
and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekel weights of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, I pray you, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge in? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bore to Nahor. She said, Moreover to him, we have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. We not only have room for you, we got room for your camels, we got straw, uh, we got feed for them. Uh, very hospitable. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Eternal. I don't know whether she thought that was strange or not. Uh, <laughs> he'd asked God, and then she came and and had an incredible attitude, so he just bowed his head and said a prayer right there. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Right straight to the spot. Can God lead and guide us in our lives? We ask him to direct our steps, don't we? That's in, I believe, the Psalms. That God would direct our steps. And we need to be praying that. I know I, I think of that often as, uh, where is that scripture that says, I don't know how to come in and how to go out. I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, I know I pray that one quite frequently, that God will guide and direct my steps because I don't know where he wants us to go and exactly what he wants us to do all the time. But we keep reading the Bible and thinking about it and asking for his guidance, inviting him into our life. I think I mentioned that sermonette that Roy Hyatt gave at the feast several years ago recently, and it comes to mind again, where it just says right clearly in Scripture that the disciples were out and the wind was blowing and the boat was in jeopardy and and uh, Christ walked by and he was going to walk right on by. He wasn't even going to stop. Uh, I mean, he could walk on water. Big deal. There they were, rolling away, and uh, probably about half afraid, and he was walking on by, and they invited him into the boat. And upon invitation, he turned around, came back, and got in the boat with him. I'd never paid attention to that. I'd read it, I suppose, several times. It just never struck me that uh, Christ wants to be invited into our lives, and to be invited to have a relationship with us. Well, they knew him. They were basically living with him and going about the country with him, uh, and yet he wasn't even going to come in the boat until invited. So we need to be asking him to guide and direct our steps to where we need to be. And I ask him often, uh, cause me to be where I need to be at the time I need to be to be doing what I need to be doing because I don't know all the things you want done or where you want me to be on any given day, so please guide and direct my steps that I be doing the right thing at the right time in the right place to please you. Sometimes we don't know where we're walking, do we? We don't know for sure where we're going. We don't know for sure what we're doing or why. And that's what a walk of faith is. If you were told every step to take and everything you ought to do daily in life, why would you need faith? I was talking to someone recently that said, 
Well, when you really get to know the Lord, he'll tell you everything you're supposed to do. And this individual didn't have much money, but God had told him he needed to buy a new electronic gizmo of some kind. I forget now. The Lord told him to do that on credit. The Lord tells him whether to get up and go to work or not. The Lord tells him what to eat. Gaining some weight. I don't know whether he tells him how much to eat or not, but uh, he thinks God just tells him everything. I don't think God works that way. I don't believe God works that way. We're here to learn wisdom. We're here to look to God and ask him to guide our steps and show us what he wants, but we have to walk in faith. Abraham walked not knowing where he was going. Now, if God told us every little thing, then he would have told Abraham, I want you to get up and go, take your GPS, here's the spot. He didn't do that. God doesn't work that way, if you read the Scriptures carefully. He gives you guidelines about how you're supposed to live, what your attitude ought to be, and then he gives you hints in the Scriptures, and he's given us some we've read recently that told us generally what we should do. And then we came out, didn't we, looking for a place. Didn't know where it was. I don't remember the Lord telling me, now, Daryl, I want you to go out to cane beds, and there's a piece of land out there, and here's the guy's phone number. Call him up and ask him if he wants to sell you some land. He didn't do it that way. He let us look. He let us wonder. He let us search. He let us trust. And then when the time was right and the place was right, bingo. Everything fell right into place, almost given to us. So he expects us to do our part. But we should be asking for guidance and directing, the guidance and directing of our steps. So he had led him to the house of his master's brethren, but notice he didn't tell him. He didn't say, well, you go to this particular well by this particular city, and I'm going to bring a girl named Rebecca out. And Ask her for water. He prayed. Events happened. Thank God. The damsel ran and told him of her mother's house these things. Now, she showed a good attitude before she ever got the gold jewelry, didn't she? So it wasn't just the jewelry that impressed her or caused her to do what she did. Um, she had the right attitude. He gave her gifts. Now, that might have gotten her a little more excited, maybe partly why she ran. And back then, too, they knew about arranged marriages. So it might be possible she thought, hey, my man's coming. But I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, she ran. Verse 29, Rebecca had a brother, and his name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man to the well. They did a lot of running. She came in all excited, he'd run out of breath maybe, and told Laban, and he ran. Maybe they just didn't get out much or have many visitors. <laughs> I don't know the whole story. came to pass when he saw the earring and bracelets upon his sister's hands, ah, 
And when he heard the words of Rebekah his sister, saying, Thus spoke the man to me, that he came to the man, and behold, he stood by the camels at the well. He, he wanted to hear the story, wanted to wonder where the, the gold came from. And he said, Come in, you blessed of the eternal. Wherefore stand you without? For I have prepared the house and room for the camels. I don't know if the camels came in the house or not. It almost sounds like it, but I, they probably had a separate place for the camels. And the man came into the house, and he ungirded his camels, unsaddled them, and gave straw and provender for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the men's feet that were with him. And there was set meat before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told my errand. So they said, Speak on. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Eternal has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and manservants and camels and asses. Uh, those things were meant to impress these guys, I'm sure. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him has he given all that he has. So he said he's got all these riches, and he had a son, and Abraham's given all this stuff to Isaac. This, this is preparatory work. This, this is good salesmanship here. And my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my kindred, and take a wife to my son. Now these people had heard about Uncle Abraham, I'm sure. They knew the story of Abraham and Sarah and of Isaac later on. And Isaac was at this time 37 years of age. So word had gotten back and forth, I'm sure, uh, by visitors and travelers. Uh, but he's reaffirming that this is kin. Uh, this is a marriageable situation. And I got lots of goodies with me. So he told me to go and take a wife of my kindred, and I said to my master, What if the woman will not follow me? And he said to me, The Eternal before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son of my kindred and of my father's house. So he knew in faith these things would work out. Abraham had been waiting a long, long time, hadn't he? long time for Isaac to appear, and then 37 more years for him to reach the age where he said it's time to get married. And he told me, Then you shall be clear from this my oath when you come to my kindred, and if they give not you one, you shall be clear from my oath. And I came this day to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, he's got to tell his story about how God was with him, and I'm sure that this was meant also to impress them that uh, what I'm doing here is God's will, and therefore you people should cooperate. I said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if now you do prosper my way, which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, which shall come to pass that when the virgin comes forth to draw water, and I say to her, Give me, I pray you, a little water of the pitcher to drink. And she say to me, Both drink you, and I will also draw for your camels. Let the same be the woman whom the Eternal has appointed out for my master's son. In other words, this is a marriage made in heaven. It's basically what he's telling in his story. How could you guys turn this down after God answered my prayer and sent Rebecca there and she did exactly what I'd prayed for? And she say, and she say to me, both drink you, oh, let's see, I guess I read that. 
And before I had done speaking in my heart, verse 45, he was praying silently, Behold, Rebekah came forth with her pitcher on her shoulder. She went down into the well. She drew water. And I said to her, Let me drink, I pray you. And she made haste and let down her pitcher from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she made the camels drink also. And I asked her and said, He's going into quite a bit of detail in repeating the story, isn't he? This is an important story. Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bare to him. And I put the earring upon her face and the bracelets upon her hands. And I bowed down my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the eternal God of my master Abraham, which had led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter to his son. And now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Did I come to the right place or did I not? I need to let me know if I'm barking up the right tree. If not, I'll go somewhere else. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceeds from the eternal. The guy's prayer was answered. This must be coming from God. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife, as the eternal has spoken. Long courtship and engagement here. <laughs> and it came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the eternal, bowing himself to the earth. You know, somewhere in here lies probably the right way. Our society today, uh, kids just sort of get infatuated with whom they might happen to get infatuated. He's cute or she's cute or so-and-so's hot or whatever. And uh, so very, very often parents say, oh, no. And then, there's, then the fight starts. How are we going to separate our daughter or our son from this leech or whatever they term the intended? Uh, this no good... I'm sure he's a drunkard, a drugger, a ne'er-do-well of some kind, doesn't work, doesn't have any money. On and on it might go. And, uh, boy, the more you fight it, the worse they resist, the more they rebel. Now, can you trust kids' judgment when they're 16, 17, 18, 19 years of age, that they'll find a truly good, upstanding mate that is the right kind for them. No parent ever trusted them yet. Most of them always fought it. Uh, sometimes the parents were right, and once in a great while the kid was right. But parents have lived and are older and they have experienced some things in life, and they have hopefully gained some wisdom and might be able to read people better than somebody who's all emotionally in a Twitter uh, over how somebody looks. Uh, so I know it's anti-cultural and sacrilegious for me to even begin to hint that maybe the parents ought to be in on helping you choose your mate. 
in today's society. I mean, you know, you could be stoned for that. But maybe somewhere in here, even in our society, we should, uh, as young people, listen to our parents who have lived longer and have some experience. And maybe parents could listen to the kids somewhat. And, you know, they have should have some say in who they marry for the most part. But somewhere in there is a middle ground that is a happy middle ground where everybody hopefully can agree. And we'll see a little bit in this story that she is given a certain amount of choice. Even though they more or less made the deal, uh, they did consult her at some point. There are societies where arranged marriages are the norm. And in many cases, they work a lot, out a whole lot better than our dating system in America does. And I don't mean these strange, weird ones where 14-year-old girls are married to 60-year-old men and, you know, polygamous situations. But I mean where normal, like-aged kids are put together, uh, and it is pretty much arranged. And there's not... Our, our way of doing things in this country isn't always the best. It isn't always. Came to pass, verse 52, that when Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the eternal, bowing himself to the earth. And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and fancy clothes from the Gap or Saks Fifth Avenue or somewhere, and gave them to Rebekah. He gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things. Now, they'd, they'd given a, a basic okay, and then he started showering the gifts. Uh, we'll, we'll be sure that this decision stays the way it is. And they did eat and drink, and he and the men that were with him, and tarried all night. And they rose up in the morning, and he said, send me away to my master. He says, as far as I'm concerned, it's a, it's a done deal. Let's get out of here. And her brother and her mother said, Let the damsel abide with us a few days, at the least ten. After that, she shall go. They haven't consulted her yet. And he said to them, Hinder me not, seeing the eternal has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. So as God's with me, my master's with me, why are you slowing me down? And they said, We will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she says, How many more gold bracelets does he have? <laughs> uh, she, she probably looked at ten camels and thought, Yeah, yeah well, maybe okay here. No, I don't know whether that had anything to do with it or not. She said, I will go. And they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, You are our sister, be you the mother of thousands of millions. Uh, that gets a little more specific, doesn't it? Instead of dust of the earth or stars of the heaven, thousands of millions. Thousand thousand is a million. Thousands of millions could be billions. And let your seed possess the gate of those which hate them. 
Had they heard the stories about Abraham and about the promises God had made to Abraham about possessing the gates of your enemies and your sand being as or your seed being as the sand of the sea and the stars? Now maybe when they were up eating and drinking the night before he had told them these stories, that's a possibility. But it may be that over the years they had heard about God's relationship with Abraham and what he had promised him. And uh, if they knew those stories, that might have been one reason they were so uh, receptive of the offers that came from some uh, important personages in the family as Abraham was. doesn't really fill in the detail. You have to wonder, was this just something that happened overnight when he told the stories or something that had been known? At any rate, she said, I'll go. And Isaac wasn't even there. She hadn't even met the guy she was going to marry yet. Hadn't, had, hadn't set eyes on him. And they, uh, they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Oh, okay, we've already read this. May your seed possess the gate of those which hate them. 61, and Rebecca rose and her damsels took her servants, her maids with her. Uh, that was also a family that had some substance, I'm sure. She had her own servants. Um, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man, and the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well, uh, lay Hiroi, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at eventide, um, Favorite programs apparently weren't on on that Thursday night, so he went out in the field to think and to meditate of, of God. Uh, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. I've heard jokes about her being a smoker, but anyway... For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walks in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. So she, she covered herself and then uh, hopped off the camel. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, it doesn't say that they got married that night or the next morning. I, I suspect that it's, this was over a period of time. I'm sure they probably got to know each other. She was there a while. Uh, they intended some kind of an engagement. I mean, it, uh, it just isn't fittingly human to lay eyes on somebody and for the first time and get married that night. I mean, you know, if you're drunk enough... And in Las Vegas, it can't happen, but uh, that isn't the way it should be. <laughs> so this, this could have happened over a period of weeks or months, really, where she dwelt in Sarah's tent and they got to know each other and, and so on before they actually uh, got married. Is it already 8.30? No, it's not. It's 8.40. So, well, let's stop there then uh, for tonight. We've got two services tomorrow. We need to get some rest and sleep, so...
We'll see you tomorrow at 1030.